Hello, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's episode, I have some very exciting news for you. Spiked has a new book out just in time for Christmas. It's called The Year the World Went Mad. It is a collection of our best articles from the year that was 2020, and it is utterly brilliant with contributions from myself, Ella and Fraser, from Brendan O'Neill, Joanna Williams, Andrew Doyle, Julie Birchall, and more. It is your essential guide to the year of COVID, lockdown, and identitarian craziness, and it is a mere £14.99. It's the perfect Christmas gift, and all proceeds go to Spiked, so we can keep up the fight for freedom into the new year. So if you want to secure your copy, go to spiked-online.com slash book. Or if you want to get one of a limited number of copies that we have signed by Brendan O'Neill, we're giving one of those away to anyone who gives £50 or more to our Christmas fun drive while stocks last. To get your hands on one of those, when you go to spiked-online.com slash book, just click the donate option. Thank you all for your support. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the end of the Trump era, the never-ending lockdown and the attempt to cancel Jordan Peterson. Big Pharma ran millions of dollars of negative advertisements against me. company counting our vote is owned by two Venezuelans who were allies of Chavez. Incredibly damaging messages being sent to the rest of the world about how democracy functions. The presidential transition has officially begun with the Trump administration and the president himself acknowledging that Joe Biden will take office come January 20th. Donald Trump has cleared the way for Joe Biden to take office, recommending that a transition be allowed to take place. Trump still hasn't given a formal concession speech, and he still maintains that the election was rigged, but he will allow for the peaceful transfer of power. The Trump campaign's claims of voter fraud were becoming increasingly outlandish. His lawyer Rudy Giuliani and the former prosecutor Sidney Powell said that a vast conspiracy connecting George Soros and the late Hugo Chavez was behind a plot to switch votes from Trump to Biden. Uh, no evidence for this has been produced. Tom, Trump's going to go peacefully. This is not exactly how things had been hyped, is it? Certainly not. I mean, for so long we'd been told that Trump was basically a kind of neo-fascist, that he was never going to give over the reins of power. He wanted to keep his manicured hands on the on the throne for as long as possible. And yet this is how America's fascist presidency ends with the peaceful transfer of, of power. Now, of course, the way in which he's been going about this ever since the election result has been very shameful. And as you say, very embarrassing, you know, mm. over recent weeks, the, the wheels have completely fallen off when you've got Rudy Giuliani sweating out his hair dye and Sidney Powell threatening to release the Kraken or whatever it was. The game was obviously up. But what I think is quite clear is that despite the fact there was a lot of talk all throughout his presidency, but particularly in the run-up to the election, that this again is why Trump is uniquely dangerous and fascistic, because there is a genuine likelihood that he might not actually allow for the peaceful transfer of power. It's been quite interesting how the discussion has kind of changed. We've seen this basically since election day, where all of that fear-mongering has just been really replaced by snark. You know, people just mm. saying this is so pathetic, this is so embarrassing, all of which is true, by the way. But nevertheless, I think it really gives the lie to the more overheated claims about Trump that have been made about him. And I think whilst we've drawn a curtain over the kind of absurd election fraud episode, it does also, this transition beginning, draw a curtain over the absurd moral panic about fascism that has gone out throughout the Trump era. The idea that Trump is not simply an unusual figure 
in many respects quite a right-wing and authoritarian figure, but that he's a unique threat <laughs> to civilization, um, a unique threat to democracy. All of that has just kind of completely evaporated. And I think the sort of snark that we're seeing recently is just a confirmation that a lot of these commentators who are putting out that perspective didn't really believe it themselves in the first place. It was always just a talking point. It was always just a means to demonise Trump voters and to try and cajole people into conformity, basically. But as I've written about on Spike this week, I think all of that has come as a tremendous cost in various different ways, which I'm sure is something that we'll get into. Yeah, I mean, in, in recent weeks, there are even some lurid claims that Trump was basically going to bunker down in the White House and would have to be dragged out by the Secret Service, not quite calling them a fascist. But, but even still, people were making these claims that he's just not going to go along with the kind of democratic process when the time comes. Ella, what are your thoughts? That, that was said on Radio 4. I remember listening to it and thinking, is what? <laughs> Do people actually think it's going to go this far? But <laughs> strange times we're living in. I mean, I think it's a great thing that, as Tom says, a curtain has been drawn over this, to some extent anyway, over this bizarre period of fraud claims and that Trump has, to some extent, there's a lot of qualifications, conceded his defeat. Because the f- most frustrating thing about all of this is that the you know the obsession with whether or not Trump was going to accept the election or not took all the focus away from the fact of of any kind of scrutiny of what a Biden win was going to entail, what kind of policies Biden was going to follow through with. And as Tim Black writes on Spiked this week, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to talk about and criticise. Some of the people he's appointed in certain roles, especially in relation to foreign affairs, raise some serious eyebrows because they're people who have extremely hawkish records and some of them who've talked about the need to form alliances and take on China. So, you know, okay, Trump is history now to a certain extent. Let's scrutinize Biden. And so in that way, I think it's a very positive thing. But I was thinking about this the other day. It must be a relief to Western politicians, especially in Europe, who have for the last several kind of weeks to months exhausted themselves pretending to be defenders of democracy. At least they can now sit back and think, all right, I can give that up. Because the the pretense of people caring about the process of democracy, the loser's consent, the sort of sacredness of, of voting just really didn't wash. And so all of that is gone now. And we can, again, actually have a proper assessment of what has happened, what Biden's approach to democracy is, and look at that seriously. I mean, the Giuliani thing, is funny. And uh, as you wrote, Fraser, mad. I mean, the, you know, the whole kind of communist voting machines and all that kind of thing. But on a serious point, I mean, you know, you would hope that it provoked some form of self-reflection among the Democrats, because really what Giuliani is, is a is a very ugly mirror to be held up to many of the people in the Democrat party, because the kind of raving lunacy of conspiracy theories and the finger pointing like a toddler about that it's everyone's fault but mine and that I'm not really in the wrong is exactly the kind of rhetoric and narrative that we've heard from the other side for years now in relation to Russia, in relation to, you know, people urinating Mm. in other people's beds, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, Giuliani might be leaking hair dye and, and be visibly nuts, but the unhingedness of the debate around this is not solely among diehard Trump Republicans, it it goes across the board. Yeah, I think that's a key point. As soon as, you know, the votes were tallied up in 2016, we did have, you know, the Democrats declaring the election illegitimate. 
I mean, mm. in fairness to Hillary Clinton, she did concede officially, but you know, she never shut up about how the fact that the election was a fraud, the election was unfair, criminal potentially. And and so it's pretty clear that that laid the groundwork for the much more blatant, much more crass, warped version of that in, in the form of Trump and Giuliani and co saying that you know, there's a conspiracy to steal the election. I think the damage to democracy has been done by that, but also by what we were talking about earlier, the claims of, of fascism, the claims that Trump is so beyond the pale, so extraordinary that mm. in response, the resistance have to take extraordinary measures. You can see pretty much how everyone welcomes the involvement of the security state in an attempt to bring down Trump in order to dredge up claims around you know, potential Russia collusion. You can see the ways in which the media have really given up on any pretense of impartiality and objectivity because they suddenly saw themselves in this historic role of being the resistance and the opposition to Trump rather than, you know, reporting the truth and reporting things as they might actually be. So it's quite clear that this kind of state of exception that everyone put themselves in after Trump's election has, you know, done some serious damage to democracy, not just in encouraging Trump to make spurious claims of fraud, but, you know, it remains to be seen whether people will stop being so unhinged in mm. relation to politics. The the biggest danger, in fact, is that a lot of journalists in particular just go to sleep for the next uh, four years or go out to brunch, as some people have said, because a lot of the reaction in the kind of more liberal press to pretty much every Biden appointment is, oh, what a nice person they are. Yeah. And oh, don't they have interesting hobbies? And there seems to be almost no desire to criticise or get to the bottom of what the new administration is about. You know, you could almost see people trying to use the argument that, well, we'd end up letting another Trump in if we were too harsh on the on the current yeah. regime. So the dangers to democracy are still there, unfortunately. Tom? On that point, I think you're already seeing that. I forget who it was, but there was one Washington-based journalist who after, I think it was Biden's winner's speech, just put out a tweet saying it's so refreshing to hear a speech that I don't have to fact check which is quite interesting, <laughs> not least given the fact that Joe Biden gets his facts wrong all the time for reasons other than outright lying often, but nevertheless. Sorry, Ella, you wouldn't say something. It's just to remember the kind of historical amnesia going on because a matter of months ago, these same people were talking about how awful sleepy Joe Biden was, how creepy he was, same people that were calling him racist, saying that he mm. was, you know, very serious things like that. He was a pervert, that he was accused of all kinds of abuse against women. So it's just remarkable how all of that, spurious as some of it may have been, just gets forgotten. Mm. And now it's like nice Uncle Joe, who we can all rely on to put a smile on our face, is in office. It's sickening, actually. Coming back to that point about the moral panic over fascism in recent years, is that it's been so damaging to political debate in so many different kinds of ways. Now, as we've been talking about, it basically became a means through which, or one of the means through which the 2016 vote was delegitimized, but also just in terms of being able to talk about politics and hold either Trump or his opponents to account. You know, mm. it has been near on impossible to properly, rationally criticize what Trump has been doing because you were constantly fighting with these people's fever dreams, this idea that he was uniquely fascistic and terrifying. And that as you know, one article in the independent put it, he's not Hitler or Mussolini yet, but he might soon be, you know, this was basically the argument that they were making. You had to spend all your time dealing with that rubbish rather than actually getting to what was actually happening. Mm. Then you also had the way in which it whitewashed so much of the previous 
regimes, the prior regimes. You know, you saw this with the way in which all these different war hawks from the Republican Party and the Democratic side just elevated into saints because they were part of the resistance, even though they inflicted so much more harm on the world than Trump will ever actually dream of. And you saw it even with things like the, the border policy. You know, again, the border policy, particularly the family separation policy, was extreme. It was very ugly. But at the same time, it made a lot of people forget the very ugly practices that were going on during the Obama years. It reached that absurd moment back a few years ago where you had loads of leading Democrats tweeting pictures of caged children saying, this is not who we are. We say never forget all this kind of stuff. It was an image from 2014. Mm. And it's again, this has been a sort of means through which a lot of that has just been brushed under the carpet. And then the most important thing, Brendan wrote about this on, on Spike last week, is this use and abuse of fascism and the Holocaust, the way in which you just use it as a way in which to demonise your opponents, is really, really bad because this kind of Holocaust relativism almost is a close cousin of Holocaust denial. And it's the sort of arguments you see nowadays from Islamists, new anti-Semites, etc. So they don't necessarily write out come out and deny the Holocaust necessarily, but they'll kind of try and relativize it. They'll just try and paint it as just another bad thing amongst many other bad things. And why don't we all in the Jews stop banging on about it? So it's a really dangerous dynamic. So just for all of those different reasons, it's just been such a kind of cloud hanging over public discussion. I think the danger is now is that the resistance such as it is, even though it is responding to the transition with all of this snark, even though a lot of its more absurd claims have kind of been demonstrated to be overheated, they still do feel vindicated. And as you were saying, Fraser, if anything, a level of scrutiny being applied to them seems far more unlikely, given everyone is just luxuriating on this supposedly brilliant return to normalcy, as they would put it. If tea makes everything better, shouldn't we be drinking better tea? Sourcing better tea is what Chash is all about. Chash takes pride in scouring the world to find the finest teas. Three of Chash's luxury teas won gold stars at the 2020 Great Taste Awards. Their tea is served at some of Britain's most august institutions, like the Royal Academy, the National Gallery, the British Library and the Carnoustie Golf Club. There's plenty of choice in their shop, but I'd recommend looking at their gift sets. Why not make a tea lover smile this Christmas? And as an extra special treat, listeners to the Spiked podcast can get 15% off across the whole Chash shop just by using the promo code SPIKED. So to get started on better tea, visit chashtea.co.uk today. That's C-H-A-S-H-T-E-A.co.uk. Chashtea.co.uk and get 15% off with the promo code SPIKED. The England-wide lockdown ends next week to be replaced with a beefed-up system of local restrictions. The vast majority of England will be in the highest two tiers. Only the Isle of Wight, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly will be under the lightest regime. In other words, most people in England will be living under stricter rules than when the four-week lockdown started. Pubs and bars are the most affected by the changing rules. In Tier 2 areas, only pubs which serve substantial meals will be allowed to open, and you can only go with other members of your household. Gyms and places of worship will, however, be open across the country. The only respite from the rules will come at Christmas, where all four governments of the UK have agreed a joint plan to allow bubbles of three households to form over a five-day period, including Christmas Day. Ella, what are your thoughts on 
these new rules. Well, you said it in your first sentence, which is, you know, this has been billed as the lockdown has ended and now we're going into the tiered system. The, the lockdown hasn't ended. It's a really, <laughs> it's a sneaky way that the government is putting it when in actual fact, everyone can see that not only has the lockdown not ended, it's been extended and expanded for many people. So you might be able to do certain things that you weren't able to, whether it's, you know, in certain areas, go get a haircut or go to mass or whatever it is. But in general, the case remains that people's lives are still restricted on the basis of protecting us from this virus. And it's very infuriating. The government hasn't been more open about that. They've tried to kind of massage this as a something that we should be grateful for that, you know, isn't this wonderful? The lockdown has ended. We're going back into tears. And guess what? You'll have five days holiday from all of this in Christmas. Of course, people are not happy about it because it means that normal life can't carry on. And while we understand Mm. that in terms of the fact that this virus is serious and has very real ramifications and can kill people, I think there's, there's again, time and again, government is not being open and honest about what it's doing. The most frustrating thing I think is in relation to the tiered system. Now, I I wouldn't call myself a fan of the tiered system, but the logic of treating different parts of the country according to their local needs is a Hmm. sound one. You know, in comparison to lockdown, yes, I prefer tiered systems, but there are real questions to be asked. I mean, Liverpool is in tier two, despite the fact that that's had an intensive period of testing, as we all know, and actually the numbers aren't looking too bad coming out of that. So we haven't had any discussion about what's going to happen with that. Is Does that mean, are they going to roll that out nationally? When are they? If it works, can they do it quickly? You notice things that London in particular has a real concentration of testing centres so people are more able to get to test centres in and around London for obvious reasons of it being the capital city. And numbers there are, again, in comparison to other areas, not looking too bad. So, you know, it just seems obvious that they would now go hell for leather on testing, but it doesn't feel like that's coming. There are some aspects of the tiered system which not only don't make sense but are just downright insulting. So lots of people are focused on the whole meal with your pint thing. I mean, any sensible person thinking about the process of eating in a restaurant in terms of spreading the virus, you know, you don't need a PhD in epidemiology to to think, well, if you're eating, isn't it more likely to spread the virus because you're chewing and talking and all that kind of thing? What is it about having a meal with the pint that makes it safer? Of course, it doesn't make it safer. It's just that the government doesn't want people hanging around socializing and getting a bit drunk. So that, you know, in terms of being led by the science, that just isn't convincing. There's a huge amount of political maneuvering going on there. On a technical basis and kind of logistically, we know how bad the curfew system was because everyone spilled out onto the roads at the same time and was trying to get the tube at the same time and all of that kind of thing. Well, (laughs) many people have noted that all the airlines have hiked their prices around the five-day period and everyone's going to be stuffing themselves onto trains at the beginning and tail end of, of that lockdown period. So logistically, it doesn't work. But I think the real disappointment here is that while I think I would commend partially the government for one thing, which is that there is a tiny bit more emphasis on choice in the Christmas release, which is that 
there was just one bit where Boris Johnson said people can make decisions based on what they think is sensible during this lockdown. So if you're really terrified and you think you might have the virus, you're going to make a decision not to go see granny. That's fine. But if you're pretty sure that you don't have the virus, maybe you're lucky enough to get a test and you do go see granny. Great. That element of choice is to be commended. But the fact still remains that we are still in the broader prospect of lockdown release, lockdown release. We're not promised an end to this even till Easter. We're still in this kind of limbo. So really, it's very hard to find anything to celebrate. Tom? No, I really agree with that point about this is this is just lockdown by the means or with other labels, really. I mean, yeah. we call it a tiered system, but, you know, tier one, as you were saying in your introduction, Fraser, which we should remember is still the medium risk tier and still yeah. bears some restrictions. To only have three areas in that, as you were saying, Isle of Wight, Cornwall, the Isles of Scilly. The Isles of Scilly, incidentally, I'm pretty sure had their first recorded COVID case in September. That's how isolated <laughs> it is. Like if they, these are the only places which seemingly, with the exception of Cornwall, have to be separated by sea from the rest of the, <laughs> of the land mass is the only place in which it's potentially safe. How tiered is this system? One of the big problems here, and it's been a running one throughout this process, is the lack of transparency and openness about decision making. It's a boring point, but it's an important one. We don't know what the criteria are for these tiers for when you fall in and out of them you know it yeah. seems to be just what what feels right i mean it's something which has never been openly shared and the other huge problem in all of this and one thing which is really starting to mystify people is the goalposts have moved so many times and the debate has been reframed so many times that it's increasingly hard to keep up with it just in the you know the last couple of weeks we were told that the national lockdown definitely wasn't ending and now we're leaving that to go into something approximating a national lockdown at least for large parts of the country and even if you just go back to march i mean this is a point that chris snowden made on last orders are the podcast that we do with him which is also out this week he said if you just told people in march that we would basically be in some form of lockdown for a year which is seeming like at the least is what we're going to have mm. for a virus that you know kills roughly 0.5% of the people it touches, you know, predominantly the elderly and largely clinically vulnerable, they would have thought you were mad. Yeah. And yet, because of the fact that we've gone in and out of lockdown, things have been slightly eased here or there, we've become almost grateful for being told that we can have five days off at Christmas whilst also being told to be very careful, keep the windows open and maybe do it outside. We've become inured to all of this. It's a point we keep making on this podcast, but I think it's an important one because, again, in relation to our civil liberties and in the battle to try and get them back after this horrendous year, it's made it more and more difficult for a lot of people, I think, to have a realisation of how much they've lost. And it's important that we keep that in view, especially as things are going forward, and especially as we saw with Rishi Sunak's statement this week, how much economic harm there is still to come, mm. let alone the stuff we're already experiencing at the moment. The economic harm is, is is really key. I mean, we knew this before, but it was nice to have it officially confirmed. That this was, you know, the worst recession in 300 years. Now, anyone can tell you that the coronavirus pandemic, as serious as it is, and it is obviously incredibly serious and has killed over a million people, it is not the worst pandemic in 300 years, not even close, not the worst pandemic in 100 years. So the mismatch between our response and the consequences of that and the actual threat continues to be absolutely enormous. In general, it's, it is very worrying to see that actually some of the poorest parts of the country are under the highest restrictions. You know, particularly if you think about the North, vast swathes of what sometimes called the Red Wall, the places the government is supposed to be targeting for its levelling up agenda, all pretty much under these, you know, higher tier restrictions. 
And basically anywhere that's supposed to be leveling up is living under a kind of complete shutdown. So the consequences of this for for people's jobs, for people's livelihoods, and the knock-on effects that that then has on people's health and mental health is just frankly astonishing. And it feels as if, because we had Rishi Sunak's budget this week, there was a day where we were allowed to discuss the economic harms. But then those kinds of questions, the the consequences of the lockdown, then get put back quickly in their box and are forgotten about until the next economic statement when everyone can gasp once more, you know, for a little bit and act shocked that there has been these consequences from these kind of unprecedented actions. Ella? I think it's really important to make ourselves remember what it was like in the spring of this year. The reason why is because the concept of a lockdown, people didn't object to it in the first instance because the idea that you would do, as to use the phrase that the government continuously used, a short, sharp lockdown to get control of the virus, the kind of thinking behind it at that time was that you would get all your house in order, you would prepare the NHS, you would give a breathing space, get testing underway and all that kind of thing to give yourself a kind of a bit of a breather before you got going on it. It's not the idea that we would make a small sacrifice that is irking people, to put it lightly. It's that this has been a long protracted stalling period by the government. Mm. It's that lockdown wasn't short and sharp, that it has gone on forever and is no end in sight. I mean, with, with everyone is hanging on to the idea, me included, that Easter will bring an end to this because of the vaccine. But I mean, nothing is certain in the world of this pandemic. So the problem is not with the idea of making a sacrifice for the greater good. And we should remember the really positive strains that there were back in March when people had a sense of social solidarity. Not to bang on about testing, but the thing that really annoys me is that you have particularly the Labour Party going on and on about the importance of testing, the importance of testing. And of course, they're right, but they don't see what the importance of testing is. Good testing is a replacement for lockdown. Mm. If you have a good testing system, you can allow people to go and visit their families and care homes, to go about their work, to travel abroad, to, to live normal life. And so it's basically, this is all a mask for the fact that the government has failed for a a year almost now to get this thing under control. And the scientists who have created the vaccine has come along in the knights in shining armor, not just to save us, but to save the government's backside, basically. And yeah. it's keeping that political scrutiny, which is not the same as being a virus denier. It's not the same as just being kind of selfish about the lockdown. It's saying to keep up the political scrutiny, because if we forget who's actually at fault here, it's not us, it's the government, then you lose sight of what's really going on with these restrictions. You're listening to the Spikes podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media, or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way you can help new listeners to find us, and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, Back to the show. Staff at Penguin Random House Canada are in revolt at plans to publish Jordan Peterson's latest self-help book, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. Staff confronted management at a town hall meeting. 
one member of staff said that regardless of the content of the book, it shouldn't be published because Peterson is an icon of hate speech and transphobia and an icon of white supremacy. A report in Vice magazine said that staff were crying at the meeting because of how Peterson had affected their lives. One staff member said that their father had been radicalised by the Canadian psychology professor. Ella, what are your thoughts on this incident? <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that this is happening in Canada. And I think we've covered several stories on this podcast over the years that shows that for one reason or another, lots of this kind of more mental woke and quote mark stuff happens in Canada. And I think it's just so kind of delicious about the fact of the crying because you often take the piss out of these kind of instances when they happen where people object and say that we need a safe space and that this harms me. But no, but it's rare that anyone actually cries. So the crying yeah. thing I thought was just a nice way of saying, see, these things really do happen. The obvious free speech point here is that it is insane to object to work on a book because you don't like it. And I was looking up the kind of other books that Penguin Random House publish, you know, something like this, a particular bugbear for me. So I was looking up what they had listed in recommended books on Brexit. And it was a list of completely anti-Brexit, completely odious literature, fiction and non-fiction around it, including you know, Ian McEwan's The Cockroach, which is just vile about Brexit and Brexiteers and The Road to Unfreedom by Snyder with a bit of Engels thrown in there for some reason. But like, you know, you could take serious objection to the characterization made of yourself as a Brexit voter and, uh, and the working class in many of those books. And you could kick up a fuss and say, you're not allowed to publish them. But the whole idea is that an institution like Penguin Random House, which has a good reputation as it happens in the literature and nonfiction that it publishes, to be open to big ideas. But of course, that's what censorship does. It says you can't do that. But just on the point of Peterson, this is the thing that maybe I'm missing a trick here, but I have never seen him as anything other than a kind of quasi self-help sort mm. of sort of sad case. I'm not even trying to be nasty. I mean, I did an interview with him for Spiked. I don't know if you guys remember back in 2016 yeah. when he was first causing controversy about not adopting pronouns at his university in Canada. And he was making interesting points around the gender issue. He is not transphobic as lots of people want to paint him as. But I didn't think, wow, here's a radical that's going to take off. The idea that he's become an icon of white supremacy or that he's you know, doing anything other than making a certain generation of young men who probably need a bit of a shake get excited it is just beyond me. This is not a guy who's a, who's a threat enough to cause mutiny among a publishing house unless the people who are getting involved in that mutiny in that publishing house are really quite sad. I think that's <laughs> really all you can say about it. I think you're probably right in that characterization, Tom. No, I think in Peterson's case, his more strange views are, you know, completely out there, but they're kind of philosophical, theological ones. Yeah. You know, on a lot of these issues, he's quite straightforward. But as is always the case with these sorts of attempted cancellation campaigns, people don't actually bother to read <laughs> what it is mm. that they're condemning. We know that's sort of baked in. It is interesting how this is becoming part of a pattern now, which is kind of internal revolts at publishing houses, at newspapers, at magazines, kind of previously considered traditionally kind of properly liberal institutions in which you do have these kind of younger woker staff members who are just not having any truck with that. You know, we saw that at JK Rowling's publisher earlier this year. She has a new children's book coming out. There are a load of people who refuse to work on her book because of her views on gender, etc. There was, of course, the New York Times thing earlier this year when mm. the opinion 
editor was was sacked after this revolt from younger staff members over the publication of an article about sending in the army to quell the riots after the killing of George Floyd. So you're seeing this kind of time and time again. And it's just interesting that the stories are often so similar. And it there does seem, and it does, it's not entirely generational, but it's at least in part generational. There's a kind of generation of people in these organisations who whenever the company or the publishing house are working with an author or a writer who they disagree with, they act and carry on as if they've just hired like a unreformed registered sex offender like it's a direct Mm. threat to them like it's a physical threat to them and all of the kind of responses to quote-unquote offensive opinions that you used to see on campus and people would say you're just obsessed with this kind of niche student politics element has obviously just spilled into all of these different sorts of professions as a lot of us said it always would and I think that coming back to a point that Ella made as well, was that on the one hand, you do want to make the kind of principled free speech arguments in relation to this. You know, you should engage with ideas unlike your own. Censoring ideas is not the way to tackle them, et cetera, et cetera. All of which is true. And obviously we do need to remake those points. But we've also just got to make clear that this sort of behaviour is ridiculous. Mm. It's really babyish. It's really embarrassing. And if you work a newspaper or a magazine or a publishing house and you're genuinely that averse to coming into contact with people who disagree with you, you probably shouldn't work there or leave the house. That's really simple. And there's been too much indulgence of this kind of worldview, I think, so much that yeah. people feel almost struggling to say those kinds of things, struggling to call out such ridiculous and serious behaviour because people act as if these people have right on their side. They don't have right on their side. They're just very censorious and shrill. And I think people should get less and less wary of of making that clear when we see stories like this. The New York Times example is a good one because it it does bring to mind Barry Weiss, who, when she resigned, she characterised this as a kind of civil war going on in newsrooms and in publishing houses and and in a lot of kind of cultural institutions where you do have a mostly kind of young kind of woke crowd and a mostly liberal, you know, kind of 40 plus crowd, particularly in, in the United States and in North America. But, you know, no one seems willing to stand up to the wokes. I mean, I suppose the archetypal British example that relates to what's been going on this week is Suzanne Moore at The Guardian. You know, so Suzanne Moore has finally spoken out about why she left, the kind of, you know, bullying she had. There was over 300 members of staff at The Guardian signing, you know, a petition basically denouncing transphobic ideas in the paper, which, you know, I'm pretty sure there weren't there weren't any of those because it's it's The Guardian, right? And there is a very clear generational divide. And you do sort of worry that as much as you make the free speech points till you're blue in the face, there is something deeper and kind of more sociological, I guess, going on here. It's not simply about the quality of arguments being put about. Not that anyone from the woke side is engaging in any kind of argument, but there you go. Ella. But I think it's important to note that these people haven't learnt it from the wind because, you know, the thing about individuals like Suzanne Moore or some of these sort of late converts to the idea of free speech is that they themselves in one way or another and with different political issues have been going along with the idea that some ideas, some words, some books, whatever it is, shouldn't be published, shouldn't be aired, that some speakers shouldn't be platformed. You know, there's a long history, as Spiked has often pointed out, to the illiberalism of whether you call it cancel culture, whether you call it woke, whether you call it, as Tom says, just outright mad babyish behavior that's going on today. 
it, it is linked back to the actions of liberals for a very long time, whether it be calling for no platform fascists in the student movement, whether it be, you know, trying to stop Steve Bannon from talking, whether it be supporting the idea that Twitter would censor certain things that Donald Trump say. There are mad people who exist like these self-styled crybabies at Penguin Random House. But behind them, there is a long list of people who might not be so outright in their opposition to free Mm. speech, but in one way or another have enabled this kind of behavior. So yeah, let's laugh at them. Yeah, let's tell them to grow up, but let's also address the deeper issue of why we've got to this position in 2020 when adults will cry about a person that they don't agree with being published at their work. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spiked's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state, and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.